1: Hello, and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy, along with its associated websites, the EV focus, the driven and one step off the grid. And joining me as he does every week at this time is ITK principal, David Leach. David, um, I trust you are well.
2: Giles, I trust uh, uh, I am well and I trust everyone else uh, (laughs) as well as also and enjoying this ever-increasing uh, um, thrust to decarbonise Australia and I guess we're back at the sharp end with the discussion of the um, uh, safeguard Scheme in Parliament uh, which we'll get to at some point today um, but in the meantime we've also got a great guest to, to talk ab- about a different technology to what we usually talk about.
1: Well, it is, and the one we have talked about in the past, and does seem in some ways a blast for the past. And um, solar thermal, anyone just sort of disappearing back into their um, into the past. And uh, Kevin Rudd's famous solar flagships thing of two thousand and nine, um, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars promised to solar thermal and other projects. Um, we had another run with solar thermal at with Solar Reserve at Port Augusta, so. This time around, we've got another uh, try at this um, from an Australian technology, Vast Solar, which has just won some significant funding both from the federal and the uh, German governments for a series of projects in Port Augusta, the very same site of the um, Solar Reserve, and has also just announced a listing deal in New York, which will raise more money. And so, on that basis, I'd very much like to welcome the CEO of Vast Solar, Craig Wood. Craig, um, Thank you very much for joining the uh, Energy Insiders podcast.
3: Thank you, Giles, and thank you, David, for the opportunity to have a conversation.
1: Yes, look, and and we're very fortunate too because you were supposed to fly back into Sydney um, um, before this podcast, but you've been waylaid in Honolulu for reasons that we will not go into, but we do appreciate your time. Look, we'll go into some of the details of the projects um, and the funding um, uh, very shortly, but just briefly, solar thermal. It's kind of been considered by many of its advocates as the technology that could play such an important role in the, um, in, 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 the, in the clean energy transition. Why is it more likely to work now in Australia than it has in the past? Because it's true to say that it's had a couple of false starts.
3: Yeah, Giles, if you go back 15 years, um, it was neck and neck between solar thermal and PV as to which was actually going to be uh, the more ubiquitous technology. I think the uh, ability to manufacture PV panels in factories and then to install them in a very low cost, um, you know, low labour intensive way uh, means that it has quite clearly won the cost race. Uh, So there's no question that um, if you're uh, happy to accept intermittent energy, then you should absolutely build PV, you should build wind, um, and those technologies are clearly uh, going to provide the the bulk of the energy um, in a decarbonised economy. Um, The the interesting thing about CSP is actually that, at its core, it has what amounts to a giant thermal battery and that provides dispatchability. uh, The ability to generate either heat or electricity um, and provide that uh, when it's required. Um, In a world where PV and wind are ubiquitous, uh, it it actually ends up being that dispatchability um, that becomes a, a really valuable thing. And so um, as we're transitioning the grid and we're getting more PV and more wind, uh, the requirement to have something that's dispatchable to complement those intermittent technologies uh, is ever-increasing. Um, the other mm. part of it, I think, sorry, Josh, if I may, the other part of it that's really interesting is that um, it's very difficult to decarbonise process heat uh, and uh, concentrating solar thermal by its nature um, has, has a, a massive heat sink at the middle of it. so. Uh, you know, the electricity grid is progressively starting to decarbonise and that's coming along quite well uh, but attention uh, in Australia and around the world is now turning to uh, process heat as well as some of the, um, uh, the green fuels opportunities that are emerging um, and that combination of heat plus electricity on a dispatchable basis uh, is becoming uh, much more relevant than it has been previously.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, you just mentioned the acronym there, CSP, which is Concentrated Solar Power. So is that the new te- te- description or is it still solar thermal still valid or is it concentrated solar panel power? Is that where we're heading? Um, which, which should
3: we use? It, uh, call it CSP, but whether it's Concentrating Solar Thermal Power or Concentrating Solar Power, um, it, it's just a terminology. Craig, that, um, let, let, could I, could, maybe use. you could
2: just uh, take a step back and uh, let's run through the process uh, that Vast Solar is proposing, I guess, at its 30 megawatt plant in Port Augusta, which I think has a, a bunch of mirrors that you call heliostat that reflect, uh, concentrate the solar energy and reflect it to 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 a, a bunch of collectors that, and the heat that from those collectors is then transferred into a a sodium tank which is the heat sink you've talked and and then the, the heat from that can be used in various ways and if you're making electricity it runs into a uh, a, a conventional turbine i probably described that wrong could you, do, you just run through what actually happens
3: yeah david you were you were almost spot on um so the the mirrors the heliostats they track the sun in two directions or two dimensions i should say and then you're right they, they focus the sun's energy onto solar receivers, and we gather that energy in the form of heat. Um, Our unique point of difference is that we use liquid sodium metal to link the solar receivers on our modular towers together, and uh, that sodium is important because it actually unlocks the ability to have a modular solar array, and I'll come back to talk about that in a minute. Um, Once we've got the heat in the sodium, uh, we pump the sodium back to a central power block, and then we actually pass the heat from the sodium into molten salt, um, that molten salt technology has been around for decades. It's, it's not table salt, it's actually a mixture of sodium nitrate and potassium nitrate. Um, but the salt is really good because it's very cheap um, and it has a very high heat capacity. So as a thermal battery, um, it's, a, it's a terrific medium to use. Um, from there, as, you've, as you described, David, um, it's pretty straightforward. When we want to use the heat, we either take it direct from the tank and use it in an industrial process, or um, we can take it from the tank, use it to create steam, to spin a turbine. Um, importantly, if you're using heat as an industrial process, um, it's very efficient, like in the order of 98% efficient, um, which makes it very low cost. Uh, as soon as you take that heat and use it to spin a turbine, you effectively throw away in the order of about 55% of the energy. Now that's that's, um, not, uh, that's not new, um, that's exactly Uh, the same technology in terms of the steam turbines that coal-fired power stations use, Um, but it is an important driver of cost, uh, particularly when we start to look at applications such as our solar methanol project, where you're using a combination of that heat plus electricity.
2: Let's not go too far into it, and and Giles, I apologise for interrupting, but I I did want to just finish on on what makes, uh, maybe with that background, could you just explain a little bit about how uh, the VAST process uh takes the takes the concentrating solar power story uh forward using i guess the sodium modularity and what did you call it heat banks or something
3: yeah sure though so um if you go back um you know sort of three four decades the first generation of concentrating solar technology uh, which is called parabolic troughs um, th- those plants used three fluids they had a thermal oil that pass the heat into molten salt, and then they pass that heat into um, a steam uh, system to run a turbine. Um, Those plants, there's about 6.5 gigawatts of those built around the world. Um, They're very effective, they're very bankable, um, but they're just too expensive. And the reason for that is the oil that's used to gather the heat has got an upper temperature limit of about 400 degrees Celsius. And by the time you've taken that energy and passed it through into a turbine, um, it's at relatively low temperatures and, and hence quite, efficient, uh, quite inefficient, which means the electricity is quite expensive that's produced. So, so probably 10-15 years ago people said, well, um, we need to get to high temperatures, why don't we get rid of the thermal oil and just use the molten salt that's currently used for storage, but use that to collect the heat as well. And so the design that emerged as the preferred way of doing that are what's called central tower, um, solar thermal plants. Um, there's there's in the order of a dozen of those, um, uh, in fact probably more now, now that the Chinese are getting into this in a big way, but um, call it two dozen um, tower plants around the world. Um, and they, to be honest, have had some challenges. Um, they theoretically get you over the temperature limitation that means that you can have an efficient power cycle, um, but to do so they've had um, some significant issues in terms of um, operability and reliability uh, and those issues are really to do with um, a, a fundamental challenge around the thermal process control um, that sits at the core of that technology. So, so essentially what we've done David from about 10 years ago is we looked at what was happening with the central towers and we said well um, we're not quite sure that you should throw out the, um, the reliability and, and the, the operability of the parabolic troughs what about we use a different fluid in the front end of the plant um, that will allow us to um, change the configuration to be a modular tower system, so we're able to get the benefits of the high temperatures, but because it's a modular system, we're also able to combine that with the um, reliability and the operability of the parabolic troughs. So that's essentially what we've done. We call it CSP V3 because it's really taking um, the best from V1, the parabolic troughs, coupling that with the tower morphology from V2 um, into an entirely new take on concentrating solar.
1: It's interesting. To, um, um, Craig, I, I guess the, the question is then, and, and I understand why you've gone with the modularity, because I mean, some of those big central towers and just sort of you know, the whole algorithms of just making sure you've got the sort of, the, you know, the, 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 best, um, the best performance out of all the receivers. Um, you mentioned before about how, um, if you want to go intermittent, then PV and wind are no doubt the cheapest. I guess we're starting to see other storage technologies emerge, like battery storage, um, pumped hydro. If we ever get around to sort of finishing building one in Australia, so how is solar, concentrated solar, going to compete with that? Or you know, is its advantage what you also mentioned is the fact that it can do heat as well? Um, because you've all, in, in your presentation, I think to New York, which we'll get into later on, you talk about scaled technology at $50 a megawatt hour and we've kind of got to be a little bit cautious about those sort of predictions but perhaps you can sort of explain how you'll get down to that price and
3: why that's better than the options the alternatives yeah no problem Charles so let me start with the the first part of your question about um different storage technologies because you're right there are options that can be deployed um, the way we look at this is the, the battery uh, market will be massive, uh, whether it's lithium-ion or other emerging technologies, it doesn't really matter. Um, there is going to be clearly a substantial role to be played by batteries. Um, there are no better technologies for the really fast frequency response um, than, than batteries, and some of the leading projects in Australia have demonstrated that. Um, And, to be honest, the economics of batteries are such that um, anything up to between, say, two to four hours of storage um, is going to be most economically provided by batteries. Um, As an aside, um, we're also developing, um, in partnership with 1414, um, the ASX-listed technology developer, we're working on a 140-megawatt battery. Uh, with currently one, but perhaps two hours of storage co-located at our Port Augusta site. So we do know the economics of batteries well. Um, the challenge as we uh, progressively turn off the coal and, and um, seek to reduce our reliance on gas is actually the longer duration piece. It's kind of like the 8 to 16 hours of storage that, um, that needs to be met every day in order to keep the lights on overnight. And that's really the market that that CSP addresses. Um, I'm fond of saying that uh, there are options for for hitting that duration. If you're in Norway uh, you should definitely build pumped hydro. If you're in the desert um, CSP is the technology that that, um, ultimately will provide that role in the grid. Um, In Australia we're fortunate that we've got um, a bit of both so there are some sites where we can do pumped hydro and there's obviously a number of those projects that are progressing Uh, but equally um, our grid and the way our, um, our solar resource works there's also lots of opportunity to devo- uh, develop and deploy CSP um, in places that will also provide that 8 to 16 hours so our personal view is I think it'll be a mix um, in the Australian context but um, for VAST our, our ambition is really um, all of those Sunbelt countries around the world and in most of those Locations, there's actually not simply not an option to do pumped hydro, so um, CSP really does become the default technology.
1: Can um, I just asking t- um, turning to. Yeah, yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, actually, no, I
3: forgot you yeah, 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 costs. Please do. <laughs> yep. Yeah, um, so, look, on the cost piece, um, we've got a fundamental view that 50 US dollars a megawatt hour um, is just a benchmark we have to hit if we're going to be deployed around the world, and really importantly, if our technology is going to materially contribute to the decarbonisation effort. Um, The way CSP is now being used, uh, which is unsurprising given how cheap PV is, um, is as a complement to PV. So our $50 a megawatt hour target um, is assuming we have uh, a PV plant that provides daytime energy for, call it, eight hours a day. Um, but then that's coupled to a CSP plant that typically uh, provides 12 to 16 hours of overnight energy. So between those two plants that operate um, through the same grid connection, uh, we that's where we get to our $50 megawatt hour number. Um, the the drivers for um, so achieving th- let's that just number, hang on,
2: Craig. Just there a second. So the, the, of the 50, what is the actual pure CSP cost if if you
3: didn't have yep. the PV in there? so david we typically run our pv numbers at about 25 to 30 us a megawatt hour Um, and when you disaggregate that that means the csp ends up being in the order of 60 to 70 us dollars a megawatt hour on a on a separable basis now the reason that um, whenever i talk about our target i always say include the words at scale is because um, unlike pv unlike batteries CSP has um, some really significant drivers that make it much cheaper when the plants get bigger. Um, To give you the the big three, um, number one, turbines become more efficient when they get larger. Number two, operations and maintenance. So the staffing level um, for a, for example, a 30 megawatt plant is not materially lower than the staffing level required to run a 300 megawatt plant. So the O&M burden um, that these plants carry, that the economics carry, um it really is it does push you to larger plants um, and then the third thing uh, that that means, makes larger plants cheaper there are just intrinsic economies of scale uh, that, are, that reside within the power block so to give you a sense of that um, a 300 megawatt turbine costs you roughly four times as much as a 30 megawatt turbine so those three things primarily there's there's a number of other factors as well but they're the three big ones they really combine to mean that um, at, at above 100 megawatt CSP is cheap. By the time you get to say 150, 200 megawatts, um, see it, the CSP becomes really, really um, the cheapest option for hot, dry climates. So let, it's, let, you know, let, that 50 megawatt target presupposes that we're looking at, as I said, 150 to 250 megawatt plants that are hybridised between CSP and PV.
2: I, I, I absolutely want to come onto the process heat side of things, which I think is a sort of uh, new kid on the block. And, and, uh, but just finishing at the moment with what you're doing in Port Augusta, I, I, I understand Arena has provided a 65 million grant and there is a concessional finance of a 110 million. Is there any uh, actual vast money going into that project?
3: Yes, David, there will be. So, um, the the actual uh, arena and federal government arrangements are up to 65 and up to 110. Um, and the you know the, the fine print on those arrangements um, is something that we continue to work through with um, with the relevant bodies. Um, Vast uh, will be required to put an equity check on the table of 45 million Australian dollars. Um, and uh, that fine print that I mentioned a moment ago uh, will be adjusted such that um, by the time we are reaching financial close, there will be a small uh, return on the vast solar equity. But um, you know, we, ARENA, um, the federal government, everyone understands that um, given the amount of support that the government is providing to that project, um, it would be inappropriate for, for that return on equity to be anything other than small.
2: So uh, just trying to get a t- an idea of the total cost, Craig, of that project without getting to the hydrogen bit of it, is somewhere around the Aussie 200 million mark for the 30 megawatts. Is, is, is that what we're talking
3: about? Yeah, look, David, that's correct. Um, that number does include um, a number of contingency elements and so on, but uh, if you go back uh, a week or so ago and look at the, um, the formal ARENA release, the number that's included in there is 203 million.
2: Yeah. Uh, which, you know, uh, I th- I'm, make to be about $6 million a megawatt. And this is why the importance of scale uh, becomes, uh, is important. And, and, and uh, then there are 280 megawatt, 88 megawatt hours per day of maximum, which is about, you know, nine and a half hours. And can you give uh, our listeners an idea of what kind of capacity factor you expect from the plant?
3: Uh, yeah. Look, the plant in Port Augusta will be a capacity factor of um, uh, twenty-five to call it low thirties percent, over depending on on the weather each year. Um, the reality, though, is that uh, so, sorry, that that's
2: plant... 30 percent 30, of the two eighty-eight megawatt hours uh, per day. Oh no,
3: no, so, sorry. No, I'm talking. Um, I was talking about uh, overall annual capacity factor. Um, if, if you want to talk about it in terms of the 288 megawatt um, thermal, the, the reality is um, you need to leave a little bit of salt in the bottom of the tank. So yep. um, all of our numbers are essentially assuming that we're going to be dispatching at full load for eight hours per day on those days when um, we've had appropriate sunshine to be able to fill the tank up with energy.
2: Which in South Australia is probably going to be, I don't know, 85% of the days or something like that. I, I don't really know.
3: Yeah, uh, yeah. It's uh, so The Port Augusta side is good. Um, it is something of a maritime climate, so there's quite a bit of seasonality around the winter months. But certainly for you know nine, ten months a year, um, it's a great place for CSP. And you know,
2: because people are going to be interested in this, uh, what what would you say is a number that you should use for for operating costs? And if I'm list in terms of dollars a megawatt hour, and if I'm hearing what you say, that's a number that will be. Rel- won't go up as the capacity goes up so much. I mean, I suppose there'll be more consumables, and I don't know whether you have to replace the sodium or the salt or the mirrors wear out or stuff like that. But you know, basically, what's what's the, what's what's your total opex per megawatt hour? And how, what do you have
3: in mind for that? Uh, look, David, the, the opex per megawatt hour is um, significantly impacted by scale. So, to give you a sense of it. Um, you know, if you're talking about a 250 megawatt plant, you're probably looking at an opex bill of, call it, 10 to $15 a megawatt hour. Um, if, you, if you built a, let's say, a 30 megawatt plant um, uh, with the same storage duration, that opex number might be, you know, I, I'm sort of guessing somewhat here because you'd never build that plant, but, um, you know, you'd probably be looking at $60 to $80 a megawatt hour the the drivers of that it's important to understand it, it's really about the labour that's required to operate the plant. Um, CSP, unlike uh, most of the other renewable technologies, we actually do need skilled operators. So, um, you know, if I go back to look at our demonstration project that we built in Forbes, we actually had three um, individuals who had uh, worked previously at coal-fired power stations. So the you know the ability to to actually Genuinely provide a just transition for impacted uh, power station workers is one of the great advantages of CSP. That the downside of needing those skilled labour, uh, that skilled labour, I should say, is that it um, it is expensive. Um, on a big plant, that expense is obviously spread across more megawatt hours. But on a smaller plant, um, it really does act to uh, to make the per megawatt hour numbers um, far more expensive. Gotcha. Um, uh, yep. Uh, sorry, so, d- just don't don't, just it, on. Just one other point, just quickly, because um, this is also important. So um, the sodium loop is completely closed. The salt loop is completely closed. The steam loop, we do have to top up the water a little bit, just as you always do with a steam cycle turbine. So there really aren't significant amounts of consumables, other than you know very rare break fix events um, in the heliostat field, you know regular maintenance on valves and pumps and, and the turbine and so on. But the um, you know the consumable uh, aspect to it is, is minimal. It's certainly not, for example, like a battery where you know, most days, um, most lithium-ion batteries these days are specified to last perhaps 15 years. And at that point, they essentially need to be thrown away and replaced. Um, that's not how CSP works.
2: Yeah, Craig, you mentioned earlier that um, uh, one of the very interesting things and unique things about um, VAST process is that it generates a lot of process heat uh, at quite a low cost. But the question compared to say gas, uh, but the th- question in my mind is how to get the process heat to where it's needed. In Australia, we have a big need for process heat in things like bakeries, brickworks, chemicals plants, I suppose, but uh, alumina refineries, there's a ton of uses for it, but you know they basically need the process heat on the spot. Um, I guess you could generate methanol or something. Uh, but basically you've got to put the concentrated solar n- next to where it's going to be used,
3: don't you? Yeah Dave that, <clears throat> that's correct. So um, heat doesn't transport very easily. Um, and uh, you know if you sort of hop in the helicopter and, and look from a high altitude, what that I think is going to mean is that there will be a range of different technologies that are employed to drive decarbonisation um, in the industrial process heat market. Um, that, will, that, that range will include CSP, um, you know, at the scale um, and at the temperatures um, uh, where it is appropriate to do so. But obviously um, you also need the land uh, and the appropriate solar resource. So, you know, if I was to look around the Australian landscape, as you've said, there's a number of, um, you know, Illuma situations in Western Australia where that that could make sense. Um, obviously there's, um, uh, there's Moomba, um, uh, the Santos gas field in South Australia. There's a number of those applications where it's, um, really quite clear that CSP will have a, a significant advantage. Um, if you sort of look at um, smaller scale heat users, um, so for example we're currently acting as um, owner's engineer um, on a project for a, um, a facility that uses quite a significant amount of gas. They've got some land nearby um, and we're actually going to be recommending um, for various technical trade-off reasons um, that they install a parabol- a direct steam parabolic trough system, um, to allow them to uh, reduce their gas consumption. So that's another example, albeit at a different scale. But there- it's very clear, I think, also that if you go and talk about, you know, the local bakery, um, or indeed any of those users where currently you have gas-fired boilers in industrial estates, that sort of scale, um, that I-, I think there's going to need to be different solutions. Whether that ends up being some sort of solar fuel, whether that ends up being um, electrification with, um, you know, electric storage. Uh, I think uh, there's a number of technologies that are emerging to address those different applications.
1: I'm interested to know what um, you mentioned about the uh, equity that you needed. 40 million dollars is going to come from fast solar. So was that sort of one of the main reasons why you chose to go with this listing in the in, in New York? Um, um, some interesting components about that is that you're using a special purpose vehicle which I think has been used to varying degrees of success um, by sort of uh, new technologies, um, you're kind of doing it with a company, I think it's the biggest um, Was onshore gas drilling company in in the world but very clean to expand into clean energy technologies. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess the other thing with, with some of the listings is that that carries its own sort of risks as well, because the amount that um, you have to tell people what you're doing as you're going along. So how
3: are you sort of thinking about that? Yeah, Charles. so um, the reality for our business is that we've been uh, at it for 13 years and our technology has been de-risked to the point where it needs to be deployed at utility scale. We've got a number of projects that are ready to do that. Um, but to, to go and actually Put the equity into the projects to um, stand up the manufacturing facilities to continue project development activities. Um, it needs a significant amount of capital, and so the you know we've been talking for some time with potential sources of that equity capital um, in Australia, but also in markets around the world, um, the Middle East, Europe, and North America. Um, the decision to proceed um, uh, to raise the capital or to list. Um, uh, vast, which obviously will remain an Australian company, but the shares will be listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, that was really taken um, because our assessment was that the capital markets um, are just that much deeper in the US. Um, uh, you know, it would also be, uh, I think, um, unreasonable for me not to mention um, the Inflation Reduction Act, which has certainly um, lit a fire under, um, under US investors. Um, because uh, you know, there, there are now um, really compelling uh, uh, subsidies provided uh, by, by the Inflation Reduction Act. That's, that has certainly helped, but it's really, it's the depth of the capital markets that's the thing that's, that's pushed us to the US. In terms of the, of the partnership with, um, with Neighbours and the choice to um, use the SPAC as a way to, um, to end up listed, um, you're quite right, the SPAC market, um, it's been through some really significant gyrations over the last couple of years. Um, there was, um, uh, you know, there was a, a significant move by a number of companies, up to probably eighteen months, two years ago, to use um, the SPAC route as a way to go public, and and it was frankly it was a bit of a frenzy. There were valuations that were, you know, really uh, very toppy um, uh, for companies that, um, you know, I think it's been proven didn't necessarily have the technical readiness to be making the promises that they were. So um, uh, the SEC intervened. Um, in May of last year to really take the heat out of that market. Um, and since then, we've seen um, a much more measured um, uh, use of the, of the SPAC route as a way to go public. Um, the, reason, um, the reason, one of the main reasons we um, ended up y- using a SPAC was because the SPAC that we're partnering with um, NetC, the Neighbors Energy Transition Corp, um, it's one of the few corporate-backed SPACs um, that, that currently exist. Uh, and Neighbours, um, who is the corporate that's backing it, they are, um, they're a, a large US um, oil and gas drilling business, um, but they have uh, you know, figured out uh, that their business is really um, going to be quite challenged um, as the decarbonisation effort around the world picks up steam. And so they've been looking for um, ways to transition and they've made a number of um, investments in uh, interesting energy transition. Um, uh, companies and, and really the spec is a natural evolution for them um, along the transition path. So we're, we're quite excited about the partnership with them. They, if it sounds a little bit um, a little bit incongruous um, to say this, but our biz- the business we need to become and the business they are are actually uh, quite similar. There's a, there's a lot of parallels in terms of um, you know the reliance on uh, robotics, automation. They're a manufacturer. They operate in a lot of the same countries um, that, that we'll be targeting. Um, they obviously have um, you know, really significant uh, systems and experience in terms of uh, being a US-listed public company, so there's a whole lot of benefits um, that, that we and they are going to um, jointly bring to, uh, to the growth of our solar that should mean we're able to scale and, and roll out the technology globally far more quickly than would otherwise be the case.
2: It's probably worth mentioning again uh, for our listeners that a SPAC is a special purpose ad, uh, advisory company, uh, an acquisition company, which essentially they go and raise a whole bunch of cash into a listed shell, more or less, uh, and then the managers of the SPAC go out and buy something and then the investors get to look at, it's almost like a, a lucky dip for the investors uh, is what I would describe it, but perhaps that's a bit harsh. Cash boxes did have a run back here in Australia too, back in the 1980s. Uh, But, but uh, yeah, sometimes it's... Am (laughs) I describing it right?
1: Do we also used to call them backdoor listings? But that's probably a bit unfair as well. Well,
2: backdoor listing would be the same sort of thing where you want to get a listed shell, but these ones differ from backdoor listings, which might typically be a a defunct mining company in that normally they've
3: got a bunch of cash sitting in them ready to be deployed. David, David, I think your description, was pretty much spot on the only thing i would say is it's a lucky dip uh, and if you don't like the prize um, you're able to get your cash back so that's really the only uh, the only thing i'd add to your description
2: oh well um i guess we're getting to the end craig i mean you're a busy guy and port augusta one of the things you've you've got on and we haven't even talked about the uh, hydrogen side of that but what else is VAST hoping to accomplish in Australia over the next couple of years besides Port Augusta? And one quick question on Port Augusta at the moment, when's it targeted to be operational?
3: Uh, so David, um, VS1, the 30 megawatt project, we're looking at getting to financial close end of this calendar year. Um, from there, it's a two year construction commissioning cycle, which the long lead time item on that is um, is really the steam turbine. So. We'd be looking to be um, delivering first energy into the grid late in 2025, you know, potentially uh, falling into early 2026. So that's that's really um, the core focus for the business uh, in terms of execution. Um, the other project that you alluded to there is um, uh, what we call Solar Methanol One, which is the co-located uh, project that we were recently awarded um, uh, some funding under the Highgate program for. Um, that's a, that, that project is a, uh, it's a relatively small demonstration of uh, solar methanol. So uh, the, the plant will produce 20 tonnes per day of green methanol, um, so call it 7,300 tonnes per annum. And uh, that methanol, uh, we're still in discussions with off-takers, but that, it's looking like that methanol is going to be used um, uh, in the local maritime industry because it's relatively straightforward to dual-fuel, Um, ships on either diesel or methanol. Um, The interesting thing about methanol in that context is that a lot of the major global shipping lines, so Maersk um, out of Denmark, CMA, CGM out of France, um, uh, Costco out of of China, a lot of the shipping companies are moving uh, quite significantly to methanol as a green fuel, and so the ability to uh, produce that at economic levels um, using just sunshine is is um, it's a really interesting project. Uh, the other part of it that's also fascinating is that methanol can be relatively easily on processed to sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, and you're probably aware that at the moment, um, most of the SAF that's used by the uh, the aviation industry uh, is coming from reprocessed French fry oil. Um, uh, on the assumption that humans aren't going to massively increase their consumption of French fries, there will need to be other pathways to the creation of SAF. Uh, and so that's the the other part of our project that's quite interesting. I
2: bet I bet chips are on a growth uh, trend uh, that that's probably as fast as solar. Look, Craig, it seems to me uh, that uh, vast solar is going to be uh, a company to keep an eye on uh, over the next two or three years, and certainly this project in Port Augusta is is one of the more interesting projects out there. But I guess Giles, should we just? quickly move on uh, and talk about what else is going on uh, in the wonderful world of electricity.
1: Craig, I did actually want to just quickly ask about Mount Isa, because that's actually a defined project in Australia, 50 megawatts of you know, very isolated grid and things like that. So um, when are you hoping to be able to move
3: forward with that? Um, yeah, so Giles, um, the reality for us is that we need to get Port Augusta built and operating. Uh, that will become our utility scale reference plant. Um, Port Augusta, sorry, Port Augusta, let me rephrase it, Mount Isa, um, we call it VS2 because we fully expect that that will be the second project. Um, And then uh, picking up on David's question from a moment ago, we're also developing a number of other projects um, at various locations around Australia, both NEM connected um, as well as we're working with a number of the major um, electricity users in sunny places, so think for example the Pilbara, um, where... You know, their decarbonisation plans at the moment include PV and wind, but that really only gets you to 50 or 60 per cent. And we see CSP as being the thing that allows those decarbonisation efforts to push up into the 80, 90 per cent level um, once once people are ready to pull the trigger on those projects. So, um, as I said, the focus for us very much at the moment is on, um, is on VS1 and solar methanol 1, but we are continuing to develop projects such that by the time those, those two plants are built in Port Augusta, we're then able to, um, to move and, and you know, start to construct uh, significant numbers of our CSP projects in Australia as well as target markets around the world. Terrific.
1: Look, well, thanks very much, Craig. And I'm just going to ask you to hold on for a couple of minutes as David and I do a quick lap around the other rest of the, uh, what's been happening this week. Um, not much, David, but I will note the entry um, of EDF, um, the French energy uh, nuclear energy giant, buying a massive um, potential floating offshore wind project um, off Newcastle. So that's yet another big global energy player sort of playing around in the offshore wind market. Um, here, of course, there's a long way to go before they can even start their feasibility studies, but um, that was an interesting development. I guess the other one was the origin results um, this week.
2: Yes, Giles, and, 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 and again, to point out that floating offshore wind, whilst I have great hopes for it, is, is far from as proven a technology as uh, fixed offshore wind. Uh, so, you know, that project has a, has a few hurdles to jump.
1: Yes. Um, Origin Energy um, came out with its results this week. They're still waiting to hear finally on this bid from Brookfield and their um, and their gas partner who wants the LNG business. Um, look, um, any sort of standouts from this result, um, David? I mean, they obviously got crushed in the electricity markets and were sort of saved by their gas business. Um, a whole bunch of positive movement going forward. I mean, you've long lamented the inability or the failure of the big utilities to invest quickly enough and rapidly enough in new wind, solar and storage, but um, it doesn't look like Origin's going anywhere very fast.
2: No, they still, I I will say for Origin that they um, made a big bet on Octopus, uh, which is now the second largest uh, electricity retailer in the UK. And that still seems to be going from strength to strength. And the second leg of that Octopus thing was to build a new customer care uh, system uh, here in Australia for their accounts, so that's fine, but for me the missing piece has always been, for all of the big gen tailors, the marketing proposition. Why should I buy electricity from Origin, other than it might be a cent or two different in price to, to anyone else? And I don't think that any of the Gentailers has really uh, been able to differentiate themselves in the market in any way shape. Mind you, what they all have is the ability to keep supply even, because they have this vertical integration and scale. Uh, and so they're all picking up customers at the moment from smaller retailers who think they can do wonderfully when electricity prices at the pool level are low. Uh, but as soon as the going gets tough, they tend to fade out of the picture. Not all of them, but but, but some of them. So that's the origins on a path, and I, I reckon they're doing a pretty good job at moving along that path without, uh, they now know what they don't want to do, and they're just still stuck of working out exactly what they do want to do and how they're going to do it. And and here is where I've got sympathy, uh, frankly, for both the Labour Party position, which is, which is not bad, it's not going to produce any tangible emissions reduction in the next few years, because it's quite clear that these technologies that we're talking about for that uh, that these big emitters need are not all ready to be commercialised yet. That's the simple fact of the matter. It's not very easy to decarbonise uh, uh, an oil and gas factory uh, producing field or, or an alumina refinery. Uh, that, these things are hard work. Uh, but uh, uh, at the same time, I've also got a lot of sympathy for the Greens position that if you're serious in Australia about doing something about climate change, you can't go on letting new coal and gas projects be approved. It is the coal and gas that are causing the emissions. Gas is a major global emitter. At the margin, the growth in gas is a big deal uh, for global carbon emissions. Only this week we had new reports uh, out from expeditions into the Thwaites Glacier in Uh, The Antarctica, which has the uh, ability to significantly raise global sea levels by, say, a metre or even more, uh, that it's melting even faster than people thought. Uh, uh, You know, we have to do something. There is an economic reality and Australia's uh, trade reality. And then there's the climate change reality. Australia has a lot of ability to do something uh, about global warming by not letting the coal and gas get burnt. And it's not a matter of fining or penalising or making the producers pay a tax. It's a matter of them not producing stuff that someone else is going to burn. This is an important issue. It's not an easy issue, but it's an entirely appropriate
1: thing to have a debate about. Well, David, I'm not going to disagree with any of that. Um, I am going to wrap up this podcast for this week. I will point out that next week is going to be interesting because the Australian Energy Market Operator is releasing an update to its electricity statement of opportunities, I think taking into account various project delays and other things. In particular focus, I think, will be on Snowy Hydro 2.0. I think we may actually end up possibly seeing a bit of a shift in the closure of the Araran power station in New South Wales. Um, Origin definitely not actually fixed on that August 2025 um, closing date. Um, the hint, um, as I understand, is that maybe one or two of those units might stay around for a little bit longer. We shall see next week. Craig Wood from Varsola, thank you very much for joining us this week and we do appreciate it because you have had your flight interrupted and you're probably bleary eyed and um. Feeling sorry for yourself in a motel room um, in a place you didn't expect to be. Um, We thank you very much and wish you good luck for your uh, concentrated solar technology, the Port Augusta project and the New York listing. Thanks very much, David, once again. Thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Pylon and Evergen. And we'll be back again. We'll be back again next week. Thank you.
0: Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen